Beloved congregation of the Lord, will you turn with me again to Isaiah chapter 7, and let us read verse 14. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. I wager that, if I did wager, that there is not a person here who does not find those words to be extremely familiar. These are words that were first uttered by the prophet Isaiah some 700 years before the birth of the Savior Jesus Christ. But they're probably more well known to us from Matthew's gospel. You see, in Matthew's gospel, we read about that account of how that godly man Joseph, when he heard that his his wife-to-be Mary was expecting a child, was preparing to break off the engagement and have nothing more to, to do with her. But then the angel Gabriel came to Joseph and explained that, in fact, what had happened was an amazing thing. An amazing thing wrought by the Holy Ghost. You see, his his wife-to-be, though a virgin, she was expecting a child who had been prophesied of old. And the angel quoted these words, and and they're precious words. They're the words from which we get one of the favorite names of the Savior, at least for me, Emmanuel. And I thought... On this day in which we commemorate the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ and reflect about what that means for our lives, I wonder if it would be profitable to look at these words in their original context, in this prophecy. Would there be things that we would learn that we've never quite considered before? Could it be that on this, the 25th of December, we would see a fresh sight of the Lord Jesus, even through these words spoken so long ago. That is my prayer. And so with the Lord's help, I'd like to open up uh, the words of this uh, text, Isaiah 7, verse 14, under the theme, Emmanuel's birth. Emmanuel's birth. And we'll consider uh, three thoughts here. First, the Lord's answer. Second, the Lord's miracle. And third, the Lord's presence. Well, I would say that probably uh, the prophet Isaiah, it's one of the most beautiful books ever written, but it's not always so easy to understand. Obviously, the the prophecies in which he penned, they take place over the span of his entire ministry in terms of when he wrote them, but they often do uh, look ahead to the future as well. And so reading through the prophecy of Isaiah and having an understanding of it is not always so easy. But uh, there's uh, actually a, a lot of um, 
a lot of understanding among the commentators about what is taking place in our text here in chapter 7. You see, this was a very dark time in the history of the southern kingdom of Judah in which the prophet was ministering. The year is probably about 735 or 36 B.C., year, uh, those many years before the coming of Jesus Christ and his incarnation. And on the throne is uh, the wicked king Ahaz. He came from a godly line, indeed from the line of David, and yet he himself is, is an evil king. He's given uh, the nation over to idolatry, as well as worldly alliances with the neighboring powers. And this particular um, juncture, the king is confronted with a crisis that left him and the whole nation reeling. And you can uh, see that testified to in the second verse. And it was told the house of David, saying Syria is confederate with Ephraim. And his heart was moved in the heart of all of his people as the trees of the wood moved with the wind. It's an interesting picture. You, you have a great um, wood, a, a bunch of trees in the forest, and a heavy wind blows through and they start waving and, and rocking. That's the state of the hearts of the people. They're, they're in great distress at this news. And what is the news? Well, their own kin, the, the northern kingdom of the, um, of the ten tribes, they have joined with the enemies of the people of God in this alliance with Syria. And so now there is this plot in order to invade the southern kingdom and replace the, the king on the throne with a kind of puppet ruler. So it seems like the end of everything. It seems as though... There is no, no light peering in in the darkness. And there can be times like that as well in our own lives, can't there? We are living, I think you'll agree, especially in recent years, in times of great political, cultural distress, as well as great spiritual darkness. And as well, sometimes in our own lives. We can be going through things that can be gripping us with fear and terror, especially perhaps if there is something on our consciences that is gnawing at us, if there is unresolved sin and compromise, sometimes even um, going back many years, as, as was the case here in the kingdom of Judah. But how blessed there is that God does not abandon his people even at such times because he sent his prophet. He sent his prophet with a message. And let's, let's look at our verse in the context in which it comes of Isaiah coming to the king with a message for the hour. Let's start reading here in verse 10. Moreover, the Lord spake again unto Ahaz, saying, Ask thee a sign of the Lord thy God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. 
But Ahaz said, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men? But will ye weary my God also? So God is speaking by his mouthpiece, this, the prophet Isaiah. And what he's saying is that now Ahaz is the time to request a sign. God has revealed to you now that if you will call upon him, if you will seek a manifestation of his power and grace, will he not surely give that? It's an amazing thing, isn't it? If you would think about that, after the the many betrayals against the Lord that this king and his nation had committed, yet God is saying, call upon my name. Call upon me. And what is it that the king says? Well, he says, I will not tempt the Lord. It's a shocking act of unbelief as well as ingratitude that God would come unto him and yet he would say, well, no, not only will I not do as the Lord has said, but I'm going to come up with a pious-sounding reason. No, if I were to ask for the Lord's help rather than seeking worldly alliances with the other nations, well, you see, that would be tempting the Lord. And it is It is wrong to tempt the Lord in a a proper sense, but whenever God gives us a revelation with a specific command, it is never tempting him in order to hear, believe, and obey. In fact, he requires nothing less. But in the face of this, we have uh, the Lord giving an answer and and you, you might think that in the face of, of even this kind of defiance that the answer that would come from heaven would be a bolt of lightning or, a, or some kind of earthquake that would swallow up this rebellious king. And sometimes, really, we're, we're surprised at that as well. We look at all of the sin that exists in our world, the world of sin that sometimes makes manifest in our own hearts and lives. And we're astonished. How is it that the Lord would not consume us in an an instant? And yet, rather than a word of doom and judgment, this is what comes from the mouth of the prophet. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now it sort of take us, takes us a bit, a bit aback. Like, like how does this apply to this particular circumstance? Why is it that the prophet would bring us uh, centuries ahead in time to the birth of Jesus Christ? Well, you have to understand that uh, this is the house of David that is being addressed. That this man Ahaz, though a, a very wicked king, one who had compromised from the faith of his fathers, yet he was an inheritor to the promises 
that had been given to his father David, that from his loins would indeed come the heir of the throne of the kingdom of God. That indeed it would be through one from the line of David that this whole world will be brought under subjection unto the Lord God. That had been a promise given. So the the promise was that neither the uh, kingdom of Judah nor the line of David would be utterly snuffed out apart from the fulfillment of God's promise in the Messiah. And so I think as we consider in the first place this answer that the Lord would give, a gracious answer, a patient answer, a long-suffering answer, we ought to see that it is precisely here in the promises of the gospel which have been proclaimed by the prophets even from the foundation of the world that the amazing love of God for sinners is most clearly manifested. You look at all the, the fearful judgments that have come upon this world, whether you think of the flood where this whole world was buried underwater, or the, the incineration of Sodom and Gomorrah, or, or countless other things. That was but a foretaste of the wrath that this world deserves. And yet for the sake of God's covenant promise in Jesus Christ, which speaks of the salvation of a sinful people and the reconciliation with himself, God has patiently, has patiently held back his judgment. And shall we, shall we who see this amazing goodness of God Shall we hear this and be unmoved? Or shall it lead us to fling ourselves upon the mercy of the God who so promises? If this was intended to especially reveal the love of God and his grace towards sinners in the many years before the coming of the Messiah, how much more in the aftermath of it, even 2,000 years and more since the coming of Jesus Christ. Well, that in the first place, we see the Lord's answer. But let's also give a bit more consideration to this text and think about the Lord's miracle. The Lord's miracle. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now with that word sign in the original language, that word especially indicates a miraculous display of God's power. It communicates a specific message to the children of men. It's not merely an act of power, but an act of power from which we are meant to pay attention and learn. God is going to do something amazing here, he says to, um, to the people through Isaiah. And it is a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Now, if any one of us have had the privilege of witnessing the birth of a newborn child, 
And I think we're liable to say that every birth is something of a miracle. To see that little life come out of the, the mother and to uh, breathe the first breath with, uh, with his lungs and to come out and cry for milk from mother. It's, it's a very precious moment for any parent in particular. And we're reminded that we of ourselves could never have done that apart from the power of God. To bring new life into the world, to open and shut the womb, it's always an act of God's power and an act of God's blessing. Children are a blessing from the Lord. And in a world that does not really believe that, but indeed murders millions of children in the womb, we do well to remember that. That each child that is conceived is indeed a precious gift of the Lord. But it's important to note here that if you would have some translations of the Bible, uh, they would translate this verse a little bit differently, where it would actually say, Behold, a woman or a young woman shall conceive and bear a son. And you see, this comes out of um, a movement, especially in the 19th and the 20th century, that said, well, we ought not to translate this word of virgin. And it, it went along with many denominations, like the United Church of Canada and churches like that, that officially denied the virgin birth. It said... Uh, that is something Christians in the old times believe, but no longer can we believe that. And of course, anyone who would deny the virgin birth of the Lord Jesus Christ is not a Christian. And any church that would deny the virgin birth is not a Christian church. These are truths about which we base our eternal souls upon. And where. God has spoken, we, we must receive it with faith. But why is it that some translators translated it uh, woman? Well, if you would uh, look at the, the original Hebrew language, um, the very word that you would use to communicate virgin is also uh, sometimes used in a broader sense. So sometimes the word can be used to speak of any a woman of marriageable age, but it is also the technical term which you could use to describe a virgin. And in the uh, Greek translation of the Bible, centuries before Jesus uh, Christ, it was translated by Jewish scribes, and they translate it with a word that could only mean virgin. And so that is uh, the basis upon which the authorized version um, translates it as it does. And I think that even if you didn't have that historical background, if you would just look at this verse, you'd have to say that it doesn't really make much sense if it's just speaking about a woman, right? Here's something amazing I want you to share with the king, Isaiah. Something that's just going to blow his mind. A woman is going to bear a child. Well, I don't think that would really be much of, of a wonder at all, nor would it really fit the, the gravity of the situation. This has to be an amazing act of God that would 
truly communicate his love and grace and power. And so it is. It's a very accurate translation here. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son. Have we given much thought to what a singular honor God gave unto Jesus Christ? You think about Adam. He was uh, someone who came into this world without a biological father or mother. And you look at Eve. She came into this world only with um, the rib of, of Adam. So she came from just a man. But in the whole history of the human race, there is just this one person who came from only a woman, even the Lord Jesus Christ, miraculously conceived in her womb by an act of the Holy Spirit, so that without any involvement of a man, indeed, this tiny little embryo, this tiny little baby came into existence from the flesh of the Virgin Mary. So that this Jesus Christ has his own DNA, his own soul, his own physical existence. And yet, in a way that we cannot understand, he himself is both God and man the second person of the Holy Trinity, united to this tiny baby, so that when, according to the prophecy written here, he came forth from his mom and, and cried that scream and, and received milk from his mom, it was no ordinary baby. It was the very God-man. I think it's... It's something that we ought to treasure. We ought to treasure. You know, the, the other uh, religions of this world, whenever they would think, look at a little baby, they would never have a reason to consider the strength and the glory of the Creator. Whenever they, they look at a new life coming into the world, they would never have a reason to consider the amazing grace of a God who saves from hell and condemnation. But it is not so with us. Whenever it is that we see a new baby, whenever we reflect upon our own children or our own conceptions or our own births, we ought to think about the one who came down from heaven, who veiled his divine glory, and came into this world as a little child in order to save us and to bring us into fellowship with himself. What astonishing love and humility. We could, you know, think about our own lives. and Maybe there's one or two times where we've really put ourselves out for others and we've really humbled ourselves and said, I'm going to help others, and I'm not going to ask for anything in return. I'm never going to tell anyone. And, you know, how much pride do we often take in those little acts of humility? But how is it that we can ever be proud again when God himself has made himself humble? When the eternal Son of God was born of the Virgin Mary. 
always considered uh, the Lord's uh, answer and the Lord's miracle. But in the, the third and uh, last place, I'd like to reflect upon the Lord's presence, the Lord's presence, and that is especially set forth in the name that is recorded here. Therefore, the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel. Well, here the, um, the English Bible actually doesn't even try to translate the Hebrew text. Instead, it actually just gives you how the Hebrew kind of sounds and records that in order that we would understand this name that is recorded here. And if you know a little bit about Hebrew, you'll recognize that word El, which is the Hebrew uh, word for God. If you would consult a lexicon or, or something like that, you know that this name actually brings together the word um, El, God, with the Hebrew word with, and joined by just a simple pronominal suffix, which designates us. And so God with us, that's the name that's recorded here, Emmanuel. It's a name that is almost poetry. It almost seems like it could bring life from death just by saying it out loud. Emmanuel it speaks of his, his royal dignity, his, his love for sinners, but especially, especially his deity, God with us. And so I'd like to unfold this for us. What is it that we're to learn from this name that speaks of God's presence with men? Well, the first thing that we cannot miss is that this is a clear testimony to the deity of Jesus Christ. As we've had occasion to already say, God with us. It's a gospel and but a name. God in his holiness. God in his majesty. God in his greatness. But not merely that, but God in covenant. God who has bound himself unto a people and said, I will be your God. You will be my people. And here is the pledge. I will send you my son, Emmanuel. God with us. God sends forth his son in order that his divine and spiritual presence would always be with his people. The gift of Christmas the true gift is of incomparable value. You can have your health removed from you. You can have your family removed from you. You can have all your friends removed from you. You can, can be a totally impoverished. But what would you have to complain about if God is with you, if God is for you, if God has saved you? That's what's held forth in this name. God with us. Isn't that what Jesus said right before he left this world after his resurrection? Lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. It's a name that 
that didn't go away when he grew up or when he was crucified or when he rose again. It's his name forever, God with us. And it speaks of that eternal life that the elect of God experience upon their deaths. That they will be in the presence of a God who loves them and a Savior who purchased them. God with us. And, of course, it really sets forth the fact of Christ's mediatorial role, doesn't it? You know what a mediator is. You've got two sides, and maybe there's a fight or a conflict between them, and, and who is going to bring them together? I heard of a story this week about um, a native reserve in Alberta that was locked in a, a conflict with the government about property disputes and, and these sorts of things, and they just couldn't get anywhere. And the, the Native uh, First Nations group had their convictions about what needed to be done, and the, the government had their agenda, and, and they were like speaking past each other, completely different languages, until someone proposed. Well, actually, there's, uh, there's a very fine gentleman who's um, coming from that community, and he also has a legal background and a policy background, so he can come into both worlds. He can, he can speak to the government in their language and he can, can kind of address the com- concerns of the First Nations community and, and in that way they were able to bring both sides together. So it is with us. We need one who is both God and man in order to bring unity between an offended God and a sinful people. We need the whole Christ, both God and man. And that would not be possible if it were not for the miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth. But I think that the thing I would like to leave you with is just how, how much the love of God in Jesus Christ comes out in this name. Just really think of that and savor that as you reflect upon these words today. His name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. God desires fellowship with men, and shall God desire and not receive? Shall God beckon you to come into his presence through Jesus Christ, to believe upon his Son, to have your sins forgiven, to experience of his fullness? Shall God so speak unto us? And shall we say with King Ahaz, I will not tempt God? No. No, may it not be. May it not be that one of us would so would so weary God in that way. May it rather be that we would receive of this gift with the empty hands of faith, that we would delight in Emmanuel, that we would treasure his name, and that we would be known as a people who delight in this, the Savior of sinners and the incarnate Son of God. Amen.